Amen. All right, I hope you have your Bible with you this morning and that you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3 is where we're at in our study of 1 Peter today. Last week we saw Peter continue to advance his specific applications of the three general principles that he laid out way back in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. We have articulated those three principles like this. It'll be on the screen. Number one, beloved, this place is not our home. Our citizenship, ultimately, as believers in Jesus Christ, our citizenship, ultimately, is in heaven, not here. Number two, beloved, there is a war within. The flesh and the spirit are at odds with one another, constantly at battle with one another within us. And number three, beloved, there is a world to win. Our verbal witness to the gospel as we proclaim Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection must be undergirded by Christian living. And as we preach and as we live faithfully unto Christ, there's a world to win. We want to see them one to faith in Jesus Christ. Well, instead of giving another specific arena of application last week like he has before with the government or the workplace or something else, last week Peter spent some time reminding us of the foundation and the motivation for the type of action to which he is calling us. And so he called forth the suffering of Jesus and highlighted both the substitutionary and the exemplary nature of Christ's life and his death. The substitutionary nature is referred to in the for you part of verse 21. And then it is explained in detail in verses 24 and 25 of chapter 2. This is the heart of the gospel. That Jesus died for our sins, died in our place as our substitute, taking our sins as if they were his own and drinking the full cup of the wrath of God that we rightly deserve. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so let me even right off the bat today invite you to repent of your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to save you. He died for you. That's the substitutionary nature of his life and death. The exemplary nature was referred to in verse 21 when it says, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. And then that is explained in detail in verses 22 and 23. This is for, he's an example for us to follow and for us to proclaim him as Lord. It's also helpful to us when we find ourselves on the receiving end of injustice for righteousness sake. We have an example to follow. Jesus was suffering, not for his sins. He was suffering for our sins. He was not suffering justly because he had done something wrong. He was suffering injustice at the hands of men for our sake, right? And so when we are suffering unjustly, we can follow in his steps. So for application, we tried to pull out those three principles yet again and say, Beloved, this place is not our home. Jesus obviously knew this. He fixed his eyes beyond this world to endure the suffering that he was experiencing And we must know this, that this world is not our home so that we can look beyond this pain and this trouble that comes our way in this world, knowing that it won't always be like this. We rejoice with the scripture that says, sorrow may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Man, I long for that eternal morning that is to come. This place is not our home, and there is a war within. Our flesh wants to lash out at any perceived wrong that we suffer. Our world teaches us that to silently suffer injustice is to display the worst kind of weakness. But Jesus calls us to a different way, not the way of this world, but the way of the cross. And we fight this tendency of our flesh to seek vengeance and justice for ourselves. We fight that by entrusting justice to the Lord, who will do it right, and he will do it in his perfect time. And I hope you saw that even in the text from Sunday school this morning. 
that there will be justice, and it will be perfect justice, and it will be at the perfect time, and it is in the hands of the Lord, and so we trust it all to him. Finally, beloved, there is a world to win. If we live like this, if we follow the example of Jesus, if we walk like he walked, the world is going to notice because it will be so radically different from then. And that will give us an opportunity to proclaim the gospel as they ask for an explanation. We're coming up to a text where Peter is going to talk about when they ask for an explanation of the hope that is in you. Tell them. Tell them when they ask. Brothers and sisters, let's live in such a way that the watching world will ask about our otherworldly hope. And then when they ask, let's tell them about the Messiah who died in our place and rose again so that we might be saved. Now, before I introduce this week's text, I want to remind you that we are committed to a steady diet of expositional preaching here at First Baptist Church. Amen? I also want to remind you that we don't lay all this out months and months ahead of time on the calendar to know exactly what text we'll be preaching on exactly what day. I also want to remind you that we often rejoice that God brings us just what we need, just when we need it, as we simply walk through his word faithfully. So today, we're probably going to be the only church in America that's going to study 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. This is, might not seem like a great fit for Mother's Day, and yet here we are. And so like every day, we're going to trust the Lord, that he is bringing us just what we need, just when we need it, and that he is making this Mother's Day a Mother's Day to remember, if nothing else. Today in the text, Peter's going to apply those same principles that we've been seeing for the last month to the arena of marriage, particularly to wives this week. Husbands, you get next week. Husbands, you're going to want to come back next week. Wives, you're going to want to bring your husbands back next week, whether they want to come back next week. They need to hear the rest of the story. Like in previous weeks, Peter's going to take what is basically a worst-case scenario and apply the principles there in order to make those same principles applicable across the board. The worst case scenario this week is a marriage where the wife is a believer in Jesus and the husband is not. Even there, the call to submission applies. So how much more would it apply in the scenario where both the wife and the husband love Jesus, trust Jesus, and are seeking to grow in their walks with Jesus? If this principle applies in the worst case scenario, so to speak, how much more must it apply in a better case scenario? Let's read it together. 1 Peter chapter 1, I mean chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. This is God's word. I pray that we'll receive it as God's word today. It says, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, the former, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands." Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are thankful on this day for moms especially, and we are thankful for your word. And we trust that as those two things collide today, 
you will help us to understand your design and your desire for the home. We pray for wives, especially today, as you speak to them directly in your word. Give them ears to hear. Give them soft hearts to receive your word as true and good, even as the world scoffs at passages like this and scoffs at women who desire to live them out. Help them to represent Jesus well toward their husbands. For those who are married to unbelievers, give them a desire and a commitment to win those men to faith in Jesus. Oh, Father, grant that the preaching of your word this day would produce the conversion of many husbands as wives are submissive and fearless and chaste and respectful and quiet and gentle according to your design. Father, grant the women of First Baptist Church Harrisburg a focus on developing the inner person of the heart that eclipses their preoccupation with mere external adornment. Let them follow the lead of holy women of old in bringing you honor in the way they interact with their husbands. We pray all of this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Look closely with me at verse 1. That's where we'll start. It says, In the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. So once again, this first verse of our text serves as the thesis for the whole passage that we'll look at today. It's this like general statement that's going to be elaborated upon in the verses that follow. And so we will spend more time in verse 1 than we will spend in the rest of the text. And the first thing to notice is the connection with the preceding verses. He says, in the same way. In the same way, he connects it with the preceding verses. Now, there are some scholars that argue that this is only a reference to the example of Jesus that was brought forward last week. In the same way as Jesus. That's what they say he's talking about. Others argue that this is only a reference to the other arenas of submission that have been laid out over the last few weeks. Like, submit to the governing authorities. Uh, Slaves, submit to your masters. There, he has been teaching us to submit to an authority, even bad authority, for the Lord's sake. So some people say it's only this, and some people say it's only that. But it's probably best to see this as a reference to all of that. All of that reaching all the way back to chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. That has been the basic principle that has been applied specifically. In other words, this is not a new thought in this new chapter. In fact, those those chapter numbers and verse numbers were added much later after the Bible was written. uh, And they're there for our convenience. And sometimes they're misleading. This is not a whole new thought. This is not a new chapter. This is the next application of the same principles we've been looking at. In addressing the wives, Peter is keeping with his theme of focusing on those who have less power in the relationship and those who are prone at times to suffering. Now, interestingly, he's going to break from his normal pattern here as he deals with marriage as he speaks a word to the other side of the coin next week. He will talk to husbands next week. He didn't say anything to governors or kings. He didn't say anything to masters. But he's going to give a word to the wives this week and then follow it with a word to the husbands next week. That is noteworthy. And we'll talk more about it next week. The main command here is be submissive. Be submissive. That is the same language we have been seeing for the last month around here. And H.B. Charles, as he preached this text, made a point that he has made three other times as he's preached through these passages. He says, submission is a bad word in our culture and in our church, but it is a biblical word. Submission may be a bad word out there. It may even be a bad word in here, but it is not a bad word in the book. 
is a beautiful word, and we want to receive it as a beautiful word. This word is about voluntary submission. Therefore, this text is not about husbands submitting their wives unto them. It's about her voluntary submission to him as obedience and service to the Lord, ultimately. So let me say this, guys. If you are constantly referencing these verses to your wife in order to bring her into submission, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. That's not the way this text is intended to be used. And I'm going to say more about that more aggressively later on. We must recognize that submission, as is spoken of in the Bible, is not inferiority. Submission, as spoken of in the Scriptures, is not inferiority. R.C. Sproul nails this and connects it with a big theological point when he says, the position of headship or leadership is a division of labor. And in a division of labor, being subordinate does not imply inferiority. That's the principle. Now look at the, look at the illustration of it. He says, an article central to the Christian faith is the co-dignity and co-eternality of all the members of the Godhead. The Son has the same essence as the Father. Amen? Like, amen to that. That is a big point that needs to be made. The Son has the same essence as the Father. Nowhere in Scripture is the Son of God called inferior to the Father. Amen. Yet, in the economy of redemption, the Father sends the Son. The Son does not send the Father. In the economy of redemption, Christ is subordinate to the Father... But nowhere does that imply that he is therefore inferior. All right? So, so we see this in the interaction of the members of the Godhead, the persons of the Trinity, that there is an order and there is indeed submission of the Son unto the Father. Arguably, there is also submission of the Spirit unto the Son. Uh, we, could, we could talk about that, and it's complicated and it's technical. But we see that order, and yet we say they are all fully God. Right? There is no inequality in the persons of the Trinity, and it is the same way in the household. Submission is not inferiority. We want to nail that down. Notice also in this text that the wives are called to submit, voluntarily put themselves under the authority of their own husbands. Look at it in the text. It says, to your own husbands. This is a very important phrase. This is about the household. This is about the marriage relationship. This is not a call for female subordination in every capacity. This text is about Laura's posture toward me, not Laura's posture toward you. And let me say this. I think she does a really good job with this. I think Laura does a really good job in her posture toward me as her husband. And if you know her, you know that she is not a weak person. If you know her, you know that she is no doormat. But she is submissive to her own husband in service unto her Lord Jesus Christ. It's a good picture. We talked about this in Sunday school. Who are some people that are out there doing it right that you could walk after? Follow her as she follows Christ in this, in this situation. John Piper is helpful when he talks about this by identifying some things that submission is not so that we don't misunderstand the call to submit here. He says, Piper says, submission is not, number one, I think there are 17 of these things. Uh, submission is number one, not agreeing with the husband on all important matters. 
this woman obviously doesn't agree with her husband on the most important matter, right? She is a believer in Jesus Christ, the most important thing that she ever is about, and he is not. This is not bringing them into alignment on every important matter. It's not what submission is about. Number two, it's not leaving the brain at the altar. This text implies that Peter expects her to think through what he is saying about how to go about thinking about winning her husband, how to take responsibility for her own life in the way that she interacts with her husband. She doesn't check her brain at the altar. Now she engages it in submission to the Lord and submission to her husband. Uh, Submission is also not avoiding all effort to change her husband. In fact, the goal of this passage is to change her husband. She wants to see him converted. She wants to see him one without a word. Currently, he is not a believer. She wants to see him become a believer. That's the most important change that he could ever experience, and she's leveraging her life for that sake. Submission is also not putting the will of the husband before the will of Christ. This text implies that Christ is the one who's actually calling the shots, not her husband. Christ is the one who tells her to submit herself to her own husband, not her husband. And so she is ultimately submissive to Christ. So therefore, if the husband commands her into sin, if the husband commands her to do what Christ would forbid or forbids her to do what Christ would command, she must obey Christ rather than man. Right? This is the same principle that we saw a while ago. This is not pledging her ultimate allegiance unto her husband. It's pledging her ultimate allegiance to Christ and following his directive as to how she should engage with her husband. Piper says submission is also not not getting all of her spiritual strength through her husband. You will see later on in the text that she hopes in God. She hopes in God, and she is not afraid of anything as a result of that. She is not dependent upon her husband for her spiritual strength. She has the Spirit of God dwelling in her. And finally, submission is not acting in fear. One of my favorite parts of this text, and we're not going to have a ton of time to tease it out, but it says at the end she fears nothing. She's afraid of nothing that might frighten her. She is a fearless woman. This picture of submission is not the picture of a dog with its tail tucked between its legs. This is not a picture of a wife who is afraid to talk to her husband because of how he might react. Those pictures are not submission. Those pictures are not the result of godly biblical submission of a wife unto her husband. Those are probably symptoms of abuse for which repentance is necessary. Piper says those things are what submission is not, and then he goes on to define what submission is, and I think this is super helpful as well. He says submission is the divine calling of a wife to joyfully and fearlessly honor and affirm her husband's leadership and to help him carry it through according to her gifts. Man, if that's what it is, sign up. That doesn't sound ugly. That doesn't sound scary. That sounds like a beautiful thing. And that is the picture that is painted in the scriptures. Submission is the divine calling of a wife to joyfully, fearlessly honor and affirm her husband's leadership and to help him carry it through according to her gifts. So the text says, in the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that. Now we at First Baptist Church have learned to look for that phrase, so that, which is actually a translation of a single word in Greek, hina, which indicates the purpose of something. And I find it super interesting that Peter doesn't call wives to submission because. He doesn't say, wives, submit to your husbands because of these things. Rather, he says, wives, submit to your own husbands so that. 
so that, in other words, he's not giving them a foundation to build on. He's giving them a purpose to strive toward. Uh, that, that, may, that may be like splitting hairs, but I think that's a significant difference. There are other places in the New Testament that will call wives to submit to their own husbands because of. But this text calls wives to submit to their own husbands so that, so that something will happen. And look what it is. He says, so that if any of them are disobedient. Now, let's, we've already established that this is Peter's way of describing unbelief, a lack of faith. We've argued it a couple times already. I'll give it to you just really quickly. In chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, it says this, this precious value then, circle that word precious, that'll come up again. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve. So he's distinguishing here right off the bat between those who believe and those who disbelieve. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble, they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this doom they were also appointed. So he seems to parallel those who disbelieve with those who are disobedient to the word. Disobedience to the word equals unbelief in Peter's language here. We see it also in chapter 4, verse 17, when he says, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, right? Us who are the household of God. Us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If it begins with us what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So not obeying equals disobedience. So this is a problematic situation. This woman, this faithful woman, is married to an unbeliever. And I'm going to stop here and give you a little bit of a side and say that this problem is the reason why Paul directs the church at Corinth not to join themselves in such ways to unbelievers. Look at this, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? This is a bit of an aside, but I want to say to single folks, don't marry an unbeliever. If you're a believer in Jesus and you're single, don't yoke yourself together with an unbeliever and create this difficult situation from the very beginning. And I will give you a little bit of advice that my pastor gave to me when I was a young man. He said, and you're going to marry someone you date. That was super profound to me, and I never considered it. You will marry someone you date. And so, let's track this back. If, if we want to be obedient to the Lord and not marry an unbeliever, then we need to be careful if we even date an unbeliever because we're likely to marry someone we're going to date, all right? So that's the only word for single people today from this text. This is, that's, that's what we've got. Don't marry an unbeliever. The situation, though, that Peter is talking about here is not because a believer got married to an unbeliever, but rather it's probably because of the conversion of the wife. In other words, two pagans got married, and the wife became a Christian, and the question is, what do we do now? What do we do now? Two unbelievers came together. One of them now has become a believer, light, and the other one is still in the darkness. So what is this unbelieving wife to do? The text says, submit to that husband so that he might be one to Christ, so that he might be converted. This purpose should not be a surprise to us. The fact that he would say, believing wife, live with your unbelieving husband in such a way that he might be converted to faith in Christ, that should not just surprise us. 
in this text because we've seen it already in verses 11 and 12 when Peter said, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, listen to this, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. This whole thing, that whole third point that we've made over and over and over again is that there is a world to win. And that world for the believing wife includes her unbelieving husband. She wants to win him to faith in Jesus Christ. And notice that the text says she will do this without a word. Without a word. Now some may want to take this to its absurd conclusion and basically say there's no need to ever articulate the gospel. There's no need to ever teach and preach about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Rather, just live out. Live it out in holiness. I will tell you that you cannot sustain that argument reading the rest of the Bible. You cannot sustain the argument that people be one to faith in Jesus apart from the preaching of God's word. You can't sustain that argument if you read the rest of the Bible. You can't sustain that argument if you read the rest of 1 Peter. He has said... He has said that we are brought to new life by the preaching of the word, this good news that was heralded unto you. You can't read first, but you can't even read this verse. You can't even read the rest of this verse and sustain an argument that the preaching of the gospel is unnecessary because this verse says that these men have heard the word. They have heard it, and they are disobedient unto it. They are disobedient to the word. You can't be disobedient to the word if you've never heard the word. These husbands have heard the word. They've likely heard it from their wives. So here, the question is not preach or live. Rather, it's preach and live, as it always is in the Bible. But in this particular text, the emphasis, the accent is on the living. Tom Schreiner nails it. He says, the phrase without a word means wives should refrain from badgering their husbands about their need for conversion. Peter envisions a situation where husbands have resisted the gospel proclaimed by their wives. And wives are exhorted to refrain from harassing their husbands about their unbelief. Peter counsels a change of strategy where the primary influence on husbands will not be to speak the speech of wives, but their godly behavior. So this is what I want to leave you from this first verse. Wives, what is your desire for your husband? Like, what do you want to see for your husband? Especially you wives who are married to unbelieving husbands. What do you want? What do you want for him? Now, treat this like the old choose-your-own-adventure books. If you want to be free from him, you should turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 13. And see that that is not yours to take. If you want to see judgment come upon him, you should turn to Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. And see how ridiculous it is that we who have received so much grace should not extend grace to other people. But if you want salvation for him, if you look at your husband and you want salvation for him, then keep reading. Then keep reading because he's going to show you how to pursue it. Look at verse 2. It says, As they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Behavior or conduct, depending on your translation, is a super important word for Peter in this letter. He uses it often 
and he teaches us that how we live matters. How we live matters a lot. These two words, chaste and respectful, indicate what that submission unto the husband looks like. It, it, it uh, describes and defines what the submission looks like. The word chaste is sometimes translated as pure, and it probably has a sexual tone to it. And what it does is it keeps the submission of the wife unto the husband in check. In other words, this is not submission toward your husband to sinfulness. It's not submission toward your husband to dirtiness or worldliness. It is submission to, to your husband that is marked by purity. Does that make sense? We were talking about this a little bit earlier this week and said, said that this, this purity, chastity, helps put some guardrails on what might be the abuse of this text by a husband. It's submission to him in purity. And it's also submission to him in respect. That literally translates as in fear. And I am convinced that this is a reference to the fear of God, not the fear of the husband. The fear of God that is behind all of this. It is not ultimately a husband that Peter has in mind here, but rather the Lord himself. And Peter has been using this concept of fear this way throughout the letter. That it is the fear of the Lord which leads us to fear authorities he has placed over us. It is the fear of the Lord and our respect for him that drives all of this behavior. H.B. Charles Jr. was on it again when he said, The New Testament, this is so good. The New Testament does not teach us how to have a happy, fulfilling, or successful marriage. It teaches us how to be a Christian mate. It's not about you and your mate. It's about you and the Lord. That's good. It's not about you and your mate. It's about you and the Lord. As a married Christian, you must please the Lord, regardless of how your mate feels about you or the Lord. This, this whole matter is not ultimately about your relationship with him, your husband. It's ultimately about your relationship with the Lord. And that is reflected in your relationship with your husband. That's what Peter is teaching us here. Mark that word observe, as that's going to come up again later as he talks about the hidden person of the heart. It is the hidden person of the heart that is observed, which is wild. The hidden character comes out in observable actions like purity and fear. Read verse 3. If you weren't upset, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold, jewelry, or putting on dresses. Now, there are two common mistakes that people make with this verse. One is they go the route of absolute prohibition. Some people take this verse to mean that the Bible is absolutely forbidding all braiding of hair, all wearing of gold jewelry, and things like that, as if that is the key to godliness for the wives. There are two reasons why that is not a strong argument. First, it flies in the face of Peter's own logic here. He is not saying in this text, pay no attention to the outside. Rather, his whole point is to say, don't focus on the outside because it matters very little in the grand scheme of things. Rather, focus on the inside, focus on your character, focus on your integrity, focus on your walk with Jesus because that matters most. First, it flies in the face of Paul's own, uh, Peter's own argument. And second, the language doesn't support total, absolute prohibition. If you forbid all braiding of hair, if you forbid all wearing of gold jewelry, you have to also forbid all wearing of dresses. 
That's the language here. It's not fancy dresses. That word is inserted if it's in your translation. It's not fancy dresses that are to be avoided. If we're going to lay it out as a hard and fast rule, it's all dresses. Now, surely it goes without saying that walking around naked is not going to help the cause here. And so the NASB that I'm reading from does a good job of supplying the word merely before external instead of uh, supplying fine or expensive before dresses. So this is not an absolute prohibition against those things. Rather, it's to focus on more important things. The other mistake is to say there's absolute disregard. There's absolute disregard for how you dress. Some people take this and go to the extreme in the other direction. They say that all external adornment is simply cultural, and there's no direction here at all for what you should wear and how you should live. Wear whatever you want. Wear wherever you want. There are a few reasons why I think this is not a strong argument, and I'll draw your attention to only one of them. That logic kills the whole point Peter is making. That logic of this is just a cultural statement kills the whole point Peter is making. Peter is not making his directives in the cultural norms of the day. He's not rooting this in the culture. These directives are rooted in something much bigger, much more stable than the culture. Namely, they're rooted in the character of God that has been revealed throughout redemptive history. So, whatever the trend of the culture, the godly wife will look to adorn herself in deeper ways. Whatever the culture is saying about how you should dress, the godly wife will be looking for something deeper than that. Let me say it a different way. Wives, if your aim is to win your husband to your body, if your aim is to win him to you, then these external things should get all of your attention. If your goal is to make him like you and be attracted to you and love you and be focused on you, then by all means go off the deep end with all of these external things. But if your desire is to win him to Jesus, then you're going to have to focus somewhere else, which leads us to verse 4. But let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. The word but here is important. It shows the contrast Peter is making, not merely external adornment focused on the body and what people think about you, but rather the internal person and what God thinks about you and what people think about God because of you. You say that again. The focus is not about what other people think about you, but rather what God thinks about you and what other people think about God because of you. He talks about the hidden person of the heart. The intention of this is not that no one would notice these things. The intention is to show that the important adornments are not on the inside, are not on the outside. They're not dealing with the body, but they are on the inside. They are matters of the heart, things like character and integrity and Christ-likeness and honesty. These hidden features will be seen in the way people act. Your behavior, your conduct reveals who you really are. Notice also he says that these things, these internal things, these hidden things of the heart are imperishable qualities. That's a good word, imperishable. And it's linked to some grand gospel promises earlier in the letter. Here though, I think what the emphasis is on the lasting nature of these qualities as opposed to the external adornments that fascinate the surrounding culture. When he talks about developing the inner person, that's permanent, that's lasting. If you focus only on your face and your hair and your clothes, that will fade over time. One preacher said, pick a wife based on what she will look like 50 years from now. That's got nothing to do with her face. 
That's got nothing to do with her hair. That's got everything to do with her heart. Pick a wife based on what she will look like 50 years from now. Another preacher went on and said, can real beauty still be blooming along with wrinkles? Real beauty can. Real beauty will. Proverbs 31 teaches that charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. So sisters, spend some time cultivating this, this inner person that is imperishable and it's precious. Notice that word. That's an important word. We've seen it already in 1 Peter. And so we know that he doesn't mean something cute. It's not precious like a kitten. It's precious like a diamond. Valuable. Priceless. So this internal adornment of a gentle and quiet spirit, which displays itself in submission to your own husband in order to win him to Jesus, that is precious. Precious to whom? The text tells you. Precious to whom? Precious in the sight of God. It might not be precious in the sight of your neighbor. It might not be precious in the sight of your husband even. But it is precious in the sight of God. One preacher said, if you want to know if you're really beautiful, ask the Lord, not Instagram. It's good. Girls, if you want to know if you're really beautiful, Ask the Lord. That's what matters. Instagram says not how many hearts and likes and thumbs up you get, but what the Lord sees in the inner person. Develop that. Spend time on that. It's precious in the sight of the Lord. So ladies, give yourselves to the development of this inner beauty because that will come flowing out in a number of really helpful ways for the people around you. And here's a practical test to consider if you're doing this or not. Each day, do you spend more time preparing your face, your hair, your body, your clothes, or your heart? Each day, do you spend more energy and time on your face and your hair and your clothes and your jewelry or on your heart? I I would say when we apply that to all of us, we would say, we don't spend enough time on my heart. I don't spend enough time on my heart. Read on in verse 5. For in this way, In former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. This is all. The whole argument is rooted in redemptive history, not in the cultural evolution. This is super helpful to understand as we correct our fleshly desire to say, Ah, Chris, that's old-fashioned. That's 2,000 years ago. Surely that can't apply to us today with all the advances we've made as a people. If you start thinking like that, danger, danger. Abraham lived about 2,000 years before this was written. He and Sarah were as far removed from Peter's audience as Peter's audience is from us. And yet, Peter, under the inspiration of the Spirit, still applies the same principles that were 2,000 years old at the time. This is a timeless word that applies today. Don't say, oh, this is old-fashioned. If you start saying, oh, this is old-fashioned, I don't have to listen to that, you're going to jettison the entire Bible. You're going to throw the whole Bible out. Might as well throw it all out the window. This is timeless for us, all of us. So, ladies, who are your role models? He says, "Look look at the old holy women. Read the book. Oh, I'm so thankful, and I talked about this in Sunday school, so thankful that I can look around this room 
and see several good role models for women. Several good role models for my girls to follow after as they follow after Jesus. I'm super thankful for role models in this room. I'm super thankful for role models in the history of the church. As I read Christian history, there's some fantastic women who were strong and godly and fearless and submissive to their husbands in purity. We don't want to know about them and follow after them. And there are a lot of women like that in the book. So get to know them so that you can follow after them, ladies. This business of Sarah and Abraham in the text is tricky because if we zoom in on a few scenes from the life of Sarah and Abraham, we're going to see some troubling things like that day when he told her to lie about being his sister. Twice. If we zoom in on scenes like that, it's not good. But Peter isn't zooming in on those scenes. He's probably likely making a general reference to the life of Sarah like so many other New Testament writers do about Abraham. Generally speaking, They are helpful examples in the faith. Abraham is a hero of the faith, even though he was a stinker some days. And Sarah is a great example for wives, even though she didn't get it right every time. In fact, if we're going to zoom on any scene, it would be Genesis 18, because Genesis 18 is the only place in the Old Testament where Sarah calls Abraham Lord. Look at it on the screen. Then they said to him, those are those three guys that came and promised a child in her old age. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, there in the tent. He said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. And Sarah was past childbearing. And Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also? That's the scene. It's the only time in the Old Testament where she uses that language about Abraham. And it seems to indicate here that her natural disposition was respect and honor toward Abraham. Even as it comes off in this offhanded comment about his old age and the inability to bear children, right? Even in that moment, she calls him Lord. She calls him Sir. My Lord, one preacher kept saying. It's like this statement of respect. I think you can tell a lot about the health of a marriage by listening to how spouses talk about each other in casual conversation. And in casual conversation, she refers to him as my Lord. Brothers and sisters, be careful how you talk about your spouse in casual conversation. It may reveal more than you would like. Notice also this pattern at the end of the text, and I wish I had more time to chase this, but we don't. We're out of time. They hoped in God, they did what was right, and they feared not. Hope in God. Do what's right and live fearlessly. That's the pattern of the women of old. Oh, let that be the pattern of the women of FBC. Amen? Three applications, same that we've been making. Number one, this is not our home. We do not take our directives from the culture. We do not take our directives from social norms. We live according to the directives of our king, who is the king over all the kings. This is not our home, so we live according to the kingdom of God. Number two, there's a war within And it is raging in some of you right now. Right now, some of you are looking for ways to get around this text. You're like, well, he said said we can't can't get around it this way, so I'm going to go this way. Because the last thing I'm going to do is submit to my own husband. That is the war between the flesh and the spirit within you. We don't lean toward the way of submission. None of us do. It's not natural to lean that way. But we are supernatural people. And the Lord will help us be obedient to his text. Number three, 
Beloved, there's a world to win. So we preach the good news every chance we get. And we live godly lives before all men, especially those who live closest to us, so that they will not just hear the truth, but they will see the impact Jesus makes in our lives. Ladies, what do you want for your husband? Brothers and sisters, what do you want for your coworkers, your friends, your children, your neighbors? What do you want for them? You want to get rid of them? You want them to be judged? Or you want them to be saved? If you want them to be saved, you'll preach the gospel and you'll live with Christ-likeness. Give me two more minutes. This is super important. This is super important. Because this text is received by some women as a mandate to continue to be abused by their husband. This text is received by some women as a mandate to continue to be abused by their husbands, physically, sexually, verbally. I do not want you to receive it that way. I do not intend for you to receive it that way. If you're being abused by your husband or by any man, get help. Call the police. Come talk to us, and we will help you get help. This text is not intended to keep you under abuse. That will be really evident next week if you come back, but I got to say that today. Some of you are receiving it that way, and you feel crushed. You feel crushed by the word of God, and you're already being crushed by your husband. That is not the way. That is not the way to receive this. Secondly, some men receive this text as justification for their abuse of their wives. I don't have words strong enough to tell you how disgusting that is. That is the worst kind of cowardice. It is bad enough that a man would abuse a woman, would hurt a woman. It is infinitely worse that they would do it under the banner of God's word. It's disgusting. It needs to be repented of. That's the only answer is repentance. I've got no support for you in that. The word of God has no support for you in that. Repentance is called for. Repentance is expected. We'll talk more about that next week. Let's stand together and pray. God, help us with this. It, it, it is not in accord with our flesh. So we need your help to be obedient. We want to be obedient. We do pray that this will result in the conversion of many husbands. We pray that this will result in the repentance of many husbands. We pray that this will result in the submission of many wives for your sake, for your glory, in Christ's name, amen. All right, so if you want to talk to one of us,